Thanks for joining me for the very first episode of my brand new podcast, The Crypto Chick. Thank you for tuning in. And today I've got a very interesting interview with David Johnston. And David is actually the man who came up with the terminology DApps for decentralized applications. So I think that's really fascinating. And I actually had the opportunity to meet David a few weeks ago when I was in Malta. Actually, no, sorry, not a few weeks ago. I guess a few months ago now when I was in Malta for the Delta Summit. Um, I had the chance to meet David there and I found out about his background and I figured he would be a great person to interview um, and to feature for the very first episode of the Crypto Chick podcast. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the interview with David and find out what he has to say about uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain and most importantly, DApp. David is the chairman of the board at Factum. He's the managing director at Yeoman's Capital, and he coined the term DApps, Decentralized Applications. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, Rachel. It's great to be with you today. Did I get the introduction correct? Did I say everything that you're involved with, or did I miss anything? (laughs) Well, uh, for my family office, Yeoman's Capital, we have about uh, 40 projects in our portfolio. So it would be a little much to cover every board position or every group that I work with. But uh, no, that's, that's a great introduction. Great. Wonderful. So, David, we met about a month ago in Malta at the Delta Summit. And when I was introduced to you, I was really, you know, impressed knowing that you coined the term DAPS. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So I was lucky to get involved in Bitcoin in 2012 and uh, really believed uh, in free market economics. And so when I found out about Bitcoin, you know, you just kind of go down that rabbit hole and uh, ended up converting all of my fiat currency into into Bitcoin. And so that that really gave me some capital to work with as Bitcoin started to appreciate in 2013. And so I ended up co-founding uh, the BitAngels in 2013 uh, at the San Jose Bitcoin Conference put on by the Bitcoin Foundation in May of 2013. And sort of a bunch of the early Bitcoin investors like me got together and said, hey, let's let's fund more Bitcoin companies to build on top of Bitcoin. You know, and it's sort of as I went through that process, I just got deeper and deeper into, okay, what is it that made Bitcoin so successful? And to me, there are basically four things that made Bitcoin successful. I mean, first, you had to have it as an open source project, right? Just having an open, transparent source code and community, you know, was was an absolute prerequisite. And the fact that it was a peer-to-peer system and anybody could participate really gave people an even ground to uh, work together on. And then having a blockchain backend which kept all of those records decentralized, you know, was a real stroke of genius. Uh, and then finally having a token in the system toward the miners that were securing the network, for the first time you had software paying for its own hardware. And that's, I think, genius because it took out the central party involved. And so I sort of just wrapped up those four best practices, open source, peer-to-peer, blockchain, tokenized, and put them together in this paper in December of 2013 and said, hey, guys, let's let's use this model. Let's call it these decentralized applications, and let's do this for more than money, right? And people were doing experiments around assets on the blockchain, and uh, Vitalik was 
proposing uh, the next month in January of 2014, Ethereum. So all of these ideas were swirling around that I really just gave those set of best practices a name. And then people really grabbed onto that and said, yeah, that's what we're building are these decentralized applications. So it's been really cool to see that evolve since then as these platforms have launched, and especially on Ethereum, where a lot of that has been able to mature and uh, get released into the world. Right. And you said, you know, you say you've, you've watched this evolve. So can you kind of uh, elaborate on that? Like, how have you seen dApps evolve since uh, 2013 and now? Well, at first, I mean, there was just so much infrastructure to build, right? I mean, I think of Bitcoin and Ethereum themselves as very base level protocols that are decentralized applications, right? And you had to have Ethereum before you could create tokens on Ethereum, right? So with each level of infrastructure we built, you're able to sort of go higher and higher towards user applications, right? And so last year we saw you know, fun projects like CryptoKitties explode onto the scene and all of a sudden, you know, half of the Ethereum network was, you know, these CryptoKitty assets. And that was like a fun kind of, you know, collector's thing that kids and people were creating. Um, but you needed all these layers below it before you could do those sort of fun user applications. So I guess the transition I've seen has gone from sort of really base level infrastructure to more and more towards mainstream adoption. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, I guess if, if dApps aren't really geared towards financial gains, um, I mean, how do you feel about the way dApps are shaping up now? Well, I think that some of the ecosystem has really moved in a different direction, which is traditional companies looking at the blockchain and saying, oh, I mean, that's that's really cool. You can have these global markets. Um, but they're taking a different approach, which is what we call now security tokens or just, you know, equity in company, in companies that gets, uh, digitized, right? So let's create a digital cap table on, on Ethereum and then we can have this token we can move around, basically ownership in companies. And that's something very different. That's more taking traditional company structures and mapping them to, okay, how do we reflect that on this new record keeping system on these new blockchain? Uh, technology platforms. And so I would I would sort of put that in a separate bucket, but there's still a huge ecosystem of people experimenting with cool new things that they can do with decentralized applications. I'll give you one example that I'm really excited about is uh, Open Garden. Um, so this is a project's been around for a while since I think 2012, 2013, and they're like the leader in mesh networks, right? So if you know mesh networks, it's basically being able to get the internet without needing AT&T or Verizon or some internet service provider, right? It just messages are passed from my phone to your phone to a Wi-Fi hotspot, so on and so forth until it reaches its destination. And this has been sort of a cool technology that's been around for a while, but what's been missing is who pays for the infrastructure, right? Who pays for the mesh network, you know, to keep up all the time and for people to be able to use it wherever they go. And before you could do micropayments over blockchain, you couldn't really do that, right? You always ended up going back to a company to be the internet service provider. So Open Garden has got a great technology. They just uh, released hardware, basically these hotspots that people can get, and it creates this mesh network that everybody can share uh, internet access, and they get paid for that. 
right? So there's a payment, a utility token, if you will, that allows for access to that network. So that's a really cool example of still where people are innovating around these important pieces of infrastructure, and they're choosing this centralized applications model as the way to do it. So it's an open source project. You know, anybody can, you know, add the hardware and the protocol to what they're doing. And uh, yeah, I find that just extremely exciting because imagine displacing these huge old companies, you know, that has sort of had a, a duopoly on internet service provision in the U.S. and really decentralizing that out to everybody. It's Uber for internet, if you will, right? Everybody has a Wi-Fi hotspot. We all have phones that are, you know, have Wi-Fi chips in them. Why can't we just share internet uh, directly. And this is f- that final step that will let us do that. So those are the cool things that I'm seeing. I see. Okay. So if somebody, I mean, that sounds really, really interesting. If somebody wanted to get involved with that network, I mean, how does that actually work? Like if I'm traveling in Europe and need internet, can I use this mesh network to do that? Yeah, that's exactly it. You just download the app on your phone. There's the Open Garden app and you download the app and you're able to access the internet. They've also released a chat app, uh, Fire Chat, which has about 5 million users, which lets people talk phone to phone without needing an internet connection. So if you're in the same room or same concert as somebody, you can just message them directly. And so this has been really popular at, you know, concert venues or protests or things like that, where there's large groups of people and often the internet can get really slow. Mm -hmm. So this is a cool solution, but it's sort of breaking it out of that niche and letting it go mainstream. So now it's just an app on your phone. It runs in the background. And the idea is to get these mesh networks big enough and the value of the tokens high enough that people are incentivized to do like they did with Bitcoin mining. People ran out and grabbed graphics cards and you know uh, faster and faster computer chips in order to be able to mine Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as you unleash the incentive, now people are incentivized. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll host a hotspot at my house, at my office. Oh, I get paid. Well, that's great. Yeah, that gives me a reason to do it. Right. And so all of a sudden you unlock all of this existing hardware that people have that's just being underutilized. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's, that's the real value in dApps. I mean, that makes sense for sure. Anybody can participate. Anybody can, you know, get involved in them. If you're a developer, you can contribute to the code. If you're, you know, the average person in an office, you can uh, connect in. We've got one of their uh, routers here at our office at Yeoman's Capital. And so I think they've put out five or 10,000 of them. And so now they're getting spread out all over the world. There's another project uh, doing something similar with Nodal, where they're connecting uh, mesh networks for IoT devices. And if you go to their website, I think they've crossed like 9 million devices that are running on on Nodal. Check their website. No, 10 million, sorry, 10 million devices now are in this mesh network, basically sharing all of this IoT data and paying users for their own data. Yeah, what a novel concept, right? <laughs> let's let's pay people for their own data. Um, so we're seeing more cool stuff like Open Garden and Nodal, where that's that's just becoming reality. And so that's that's so cool to see, and that's just come out in the last few months. Right. Yeah. And I think I even wrote an article, maybe for Huffington Post, about Nodal. Um, I know their team, so I think that's a really interesting project. Also, um, just out of curiosity, do you? Have you seen, and I'm sure you have, and I, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but have you seen a DAP where you're just like, this is completely going against the whole notion of what a decentralized application should be? 
<laughs> That's a great question. I, I think that might apply to some of the stuff that came out last year, which sort of asserted that they were decentralized, but then sort of broke some of the core tenets of what it was to be a decentralized application. Uh, we saw projects that come out that weren't open source. And, you know, a lot of people were really skeptical of them. And, you know, some of them eventually open sourced after sort of seeing that the community wasn't interested in non-open source. Um, or we saw groups that, oh, yeah, it's decentralized application, but we're keeping 90% of the tokens. Well, that doesn't sound very decentralized, you know. Um, and so we've seen people get better about, you know, airdropping to users and distributing tokens more broadly and getting, you know, ownership of the the software tokens themselves much more distributed. I mean, that's that's really what made Bitcoin successful early on, is you could just download the software. Anybody that had a computer could try to mine some, and you got a, a few tokens, you know, and it sort of gave you the ability to play around with it and get involved, right? And people love to just try things out. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, we saw today the news about Stellar, you know, doing the airdrop to 30 million blockchain.com wallet users. And I think that's great, right? They're giving $125 million of Stellar away, you know, basically $5 a user, right? It's like uh, when you signed up for PayPal for the first time, right? They gave you five bucks. Or when you signed up for Coinbase, I think they had a $5 refer a friend program for a while. And so those kind of things just let people try it out. And I think that's really how this is going to go mainstream is uh, we're just going to see larger and larger giveaways like this where tens and then eventually hundreds of millions of people get to try out cryptocurrency or the technologies or the applications for themselves. Right. Yeah. And I definitely think that's needed. And, and David, you were just saying you were at uh, DevCon, re DevCon recently. Um, what were some of the interesting topics of discussion for you there? Uh, I really enjoy DevCon every year. Uh, it's one of my favorite conferences. It started in, in London the first year and then went to uh, Shanghai. Last year was in Cancun and this year back to Europe in Prague. And it's just a lot of great teams that are very focused on building improvements to the Ethereum protocol and people that are building applications and, and DApps on top of Ethereum. And, you know, it's it's just fun to go where there's a really high signal noise ratio, where that's very technically focused. I think just just about all their talks are are technically focused. And so it ten, tends to attract a crowd that's very uh, smart and very uh, passionate about what they're doing. And so, yeah, no, I really loved uh, DevCon. It's one of my, my favorite conferences every year. And quick question. I noticed you're saying D-apps. Is it D-apps or D-apps or does it even matter? <laughs> uh, use whatever you want. You know, people like the sound of, of D-apps. Uh, I say D-apps. Uh, I sort of ask, how would you say email? Uh -huh. I don't find a lot of people that say Emil. Uh -huh. And so uh, capital, capital E, I'll go with, uh, you know, capital D, right? So D-apps. But it, it's fine. You know, it's it's sort of the differentiator, right? It's decentralized applications, just like you had electronic mail. Right. Nobody says electronic mail anymore. Right. You just you slap the E on it. Right. And that was the sort of denoter of it was electronic. And so I wanted to give D that same meaning. You're like, if there was a D in front, oh, that means it's decentralized. So it's a D app. Got it. It's decentralized. So but however people want to say it, there's there's no hard and fast rules. And, you know, um, they, the old joke is never correct anybody for mispronouncing something. It means they learned it by reading. Ah, OK. 
Good to know. Well, moving forward, I'm going to start saying DApps. And if people ask me why, I'm going to let them know that that's what you say. So (laughs) (laughs) cool. So let's talk a little bit about security tokens. I see that you are an advisor uh, for Polymath, and I know Polymath pretty well, and they're very big with security tokens. So what are your thoughts on this whole movement from utility to security tokens, and how do you think that's going to start shaping up? Well, I think it's great because it basically offers a way for the legacy economy and all the existing mainstream businesses to access the blockchain. Like they're all asking, what do I do with the blockchain? Well, one of the answers is now you can have a liquid secondary market for the equity in your company, right? And depending on the jurisdiction and uh, the rules there, you know, it just offers a lot more flexibility for transferring ownership in, in shares. You know, I like to tell the story about the fact that I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. And I built a series of tech companies, and some of them got acquired by other private companies. But I didn't really see any liquidity, right? You had sort of this theoretical paper ownership of some shares in another company that would get acquired by another company, but there wasn't any public market, right? So sort of you had some money on paper. Uh, But it wasn't until I got involved in Bitcoin in 2012 that all of a sudden I had the liquid secondary market where there was exchanges all over the world. And I could buy or sell uh, the Bitcoin as as I wanted. And so we've sort of gotten used to in this ecosystem of these huge secondary markets uh, for these tokens. And so I think it's healthy. You know, we, we've seen um, legislation, regulation moving in this direction, right? We had the passing of the Jobs Act, and then the regulations came down that enacted the Jobs Act and basically said, yes, we want to open up participation for more people and not just ultra-wealthy investors to buy into early-stage uh, startups and companies. And so we've, we've seen that trend coming for a while, uh, but it's sort of been this unfulfilled promise until now. Now we have the technology to make sort of a lot of that overhead involved in, uh, in basically digitizing cap tables a lot easier. So this is sort of an example of one of the few bastions left of you know, paper-based record-keeping and blockchain gives you a way to do record keeping around that cap table. Who owns the shares? Who can transfer them? What are the restrictions? And do all that in paper. You know, recently I was, you know, transferring ownership in, in one of the portfolio companies. And I think it took us three months. And, and there was no question. Everybody was happy about the transaction. The company was excited about the transaction. The person buying and selling were all happy. It was just, legal time to go through paperwork, check restrictions, pass board consent, whatever paperwork had to be done, you know, it took about three months. And so all of a sudden now with the blockchain, you can snap your fingers and push a button and say, yeah, I want to transfer this token over here. The program automatically checks the restrictions. Yes, this person can transfer them to that person. They're both, you know, uh, accredited investors or whatever the requirements are, and it gets done. Right. And so you're talking about shrinking the time from one of these transfers from 30 days or 90 days to a minute. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just in this incredible improvement. So all these people that have stock in these private companies, all of a sudden it's be about to become a lot more liquid. So, yeah, no, I'm very excited about security tokens. We're seeing the leadership in Malta with the laws that they've passed. We've seen the regulations that the Swiss have come out 
And to give them credit for, for giving us four buckets, right? There's securities, commodities, currencies, and utilities, right? They have a very nuanced view of each of the categories. And we're seeing Gibraltar pass regulations. We're seeing uh, other jurisdictions write their laws now. So it just seems like there's this huge momentum coming up for all these exchanges to open up in these different jurisdictions around the world. So I think that's really going to lead sort of this next wave in the blockchain industry. If you think about the first wave is all about Bitcoin and payments and electronic money. And then the second wave was about Ethereum and being able to do token sales for open source software. And now we're seeing sort of a third huge use case when it comes to security tokens and businesses being able to access these liquid markets. And, you know, I, I agree with you, like, Places like Malta and Gibraltar, these are early innovators in Switzerland for sure. But I mean, what about in the United States? Because I feel like there's a lot of talk about security tokens here. There's so much hype, but it's like, I mean, these regulations are still so up in the air. I mean, what do what are your thoughts on that? Well, some of them are and some of them there aren't, right? Um, I think the most gray area that, you know, is still being addressed by regulators is really around what is a security token and what's not a security token, right? So we've gotten a bit of guidance that says Bitcoin's not a security. And then we got some more guidance that said Ethereum's not a security. And now we're waiting for a series of other projects, you know, are they or, or aren't they? Um, but if you take out the question, and just say, yes, it is a security. We're calling it a security. We're um, following all the regulations to be a security. If you are doing a, a security token offering, you're just saying it's equity, right? And I think there's a lot less open questions on that front, right? So then it's more like uh, existing secondary markets like SharePost and others, you know, uh, getting up the technology curve and implementing a way for their users, they may have, you know, 100, 150,000 accredited investors in their system, their users be able to transfer these securities who are saying their securities, who are registered or filing uh, appropriately, and who are, are going through all those steps. So I think we have to be descriptive about where the gray areas are. I think that's the existing gray areas between utility and security. And hopefully we'll get additional information on where the regulators believe that line falls. Uh, so that's what we're still waiting for. But I think that's part of why people are excited about STOs is it takes a lot of the questions off the table. Now, the downside of saying you're security is you have to comply with all the security standards, right? Whether that's accredited investors or sort of all the, the paperwork and reporting that goes along with that. You just have to assess if that makes sense for your project, right? There are projects that absolutely are pieces of software and they can't operate as anything but a piece of software, right? Imagine if every person that bought a copy of Microsoft Office had to be an accredited investor, right? The market for Microsoft Office would be very small, right? But we've said that software is something different, right? And so, you know, It'll be interesting to see where that line falls. But what I would point out is the world is very global. And we're seeing very friendly jurisdictions like Hong Kong or Tokyo or Singapore or London offer a lot more guidance. And that's where the projects are going, right? I mean, if you look at the top 20, most of them are not in the US, mm -hmm. right? And that's partly because of that, you know, unknowns um, that people have chosen to base out of 
Switzerland or London or Luxembourg or Liechtenstein or Singapore. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. But I think, you know, the more clarity that we can get, the better. Right. I agree. And I mean, the thing is, like, I go to these conferences a lot. And it's interesting because when I was first going to conferences like last year, everyone was talking about ICOs and ICOs were the big thing. And now it seems like everyone's talking about STOs. And even if they were doing an ICO, now all of a sudden they're doing an STO. So it's like, you know, well, you have this utility token and now it's become a security token. I mean, I just feel I'm confused by it because I just feel like, you know, people are just trying to keep up with all the trends. And so it's, it's hard to say what is legit and, you know, what's a legit security token and what's what's actually an ICO dis- disguised as a ST. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Well, I mean, if they're creating a security, they're creating a security, you know, and I'm certainly not a securities lawyer. And uh, I would encourage projects to talk to good counsel. There's a lot of firms out there that have uh, been, you know, spending an enormous amount of time you know, talking with and advising uh, blockchain projects. So that's always uh, the best step is to engage a professional right. that uh, can walk you through sort of all the positives. Uh, but I think I think what we're getting back to is simply where we are in the broader economy, mm-hmm. right? If you were going to join a company, you'd ask really basic questions. You know, is it a good team? Do they have a good vision? Let me see, you know, the software. Let me see the product, know what I'm getting involved in, right? And maybe that's a good analogy to somebody doing, you know, a decentralized application. Or if, or if you're an investor and you're going to invest in a startup, what are the te- questions you're going to ask? You know, the strength of the team, their expertise, have they done it before? You know, who else is backing it? So I think we're just getting towards the best practices uh, that we should have had anyway for evaluating projects you would want to be involved in or uh, projects that you'd want to financially invest in. And in the exuberance of the the bull run last year, I think a lot of people, you know, sort of waved away that traditional due diligence or traditional, you know, uh, sort of <laughs> background research that you would do just in the hype and the and in the speed. Um, but in this year, I've seen a lot of those best practices come back. Right. And people are raising uh, more reasonable amounts of money. They're saying, what do I really need? Oh, well, I need this budget. And that's what I need to, to move the product forward. So it's been really healthy to see the 2018 correction. And I think, you know, it's leading to better teams that are better structured, uh, that are taking the right approach. So I think we just need to push. We need to go after those best practices and not let them get lost when things get really exciting and, and really hyped up. Right. And, you know, I also think that now that the, the space is becoming more regulated and we're seeing better teams and better products, we're also seeing this increase of institutional investors and their interest in the cryptocurrency market. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's great. You know, it really sort of is inevitable that institutions will want to have some exposure to this new asset class, right? And that's really how I think of of crypto and blockchain is it's it's a whole new asset class. And uh, we're starting to see groups like Yale um, and their endowment make that announcement about investing in several of the crypto funds. Um, and we know that many other institutions' endowments are, are tip, uh, dipping their toe into the ecosystem. So, you know, I fully expect that in the next five, three to five years, we'll see sort of this maturity uh, of the ecosystem. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if we get to a point where institutions are 
allocating, you know, 5% of their their total uh, endowment or total uh, portfolio uh, to this asset class. And you, in order for that to happen, you need a lot of things to happen. You needed insurance, right? Who's going to insure the wallets? We're starting to see that where custodians are, are getting fully insured now. So that's a prerequisite, right? And like you said, mature teams that have done this before uh, and have really great track records um, and sort of all the regulatory clarity continues to to make that, uh, you know, more and more easy for institutions to access. So, and even the stage, right? It would have been impossible for a large institution to cut a billion dollar check into Bitcoin in, in 2012. There were only a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, <laughs> right? It was $10 and 10 million coins, right? So now that there are $200 billion in digital assets, right, in this space, it's a lot easier for a big player like that to take a, a meaningful position if they're sitting on a 50 or $100 billion endowment. You know, they could actually build a position of a billion or a few billion dollars uh, if they spaced it out over time and worked with the right exchanges or OTCs. And so that's the kind of maturity we needed to see before they could really get involved. But we're definitely getting a lot closer to that. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I just wrote an article, I published it yesterday about retail investors, because I think right now we're paying so much attention to institutions getting involved. We're almost, you know, I feel like retail investors are being overlooked. And I, I think we also need to pay attention to these solutions like Coinbase Bundle and this new uh, solution from Snowball coming out. That's like saying, hey, retail investors, like, you know, you can still you know, dip your foot, your, your feet in the water of the, you know what I mean? Like it, it's still there for them too. Sure. Well, and look at Coinbase. Um, you know, they've done amazingly well and I think they've passed, what is it? Charles Schwab in number of users. I mean, let's talk about retail investors, you know, their 18, 20 million, whatever numbers users they have today is huge. Uh, in sort of the traditional investment world and is really, I think, democratizing access to this technology. Or, you know, you look at uh, getting access in the developing world. Um, I give a lot of credit to, to Binance, you know, for opening this week up in Uganda, right? And being the first major exchange to do so. And they're pushing into Southeast Asia and South America. You know, that's that's really what we need to see is people that are willing to uh, go into these these jurisdictions where people need access the most to these type of non-inflationary uh, crypto assets. Right. Because I really think that, you know, that's kind of, you know, that was like the original intention of cryptocurrency. And now we're seeing something very different from that intention. But I mean, I guess that's okay because it, that's what happens in life. We see changes. I mean, it's evolving. Sure. Well, I'm still going after that original vision. Um, that's part of why we invested from Yeomans into Cointext is we want anybody in the world with a phone to be able to receive crypto at their phone number via text message mm -hmm. without having to know what a Bitcoin address is, without having to download an app, without having to go through all that learning curve. They can just get it directly like they do today, a message uh, over their phone. And so, you know, if they, as they've rolled out in South America and now into Asia and Africa, you know, that's, I still really believe in that vision. And we're getting there. The technologies needed to be able to scale enough. Um, and I think that's getting there too. 
We've seen a lot of huge improvements over the last year, and I think we'll see a lot more over the next 12 to 18 months. And so I, I could see us getting to a world where you have billions of people using electronic money on their phone, and they don't give it a second thought. So I, th- I think we're getting there, but we needed all this infrastructure first. So I'm still pushing on that side too. Right. And that's called Cointext, you said? Yeah, Cointext. Uh-huh. Cointext.io is the website. Uh, it's live in Argentina and Brazil, um, in Mexico. It's uh, live in most of Europe. It's launched in South Africa. Um, so they're pushing out all over the world in people's native languages mm-hmm. so they can get text message directly on their phone. And there's nothing to sign up for. There's no app to download. It just works on your phone number. Um, And they control the funds. Cointext doesn't have any control over the funds. Sort of like the uh, blockchain.info type of model, right? You can log onto the website and see your wallet and only you have the password, right? So anyway, I find that kind of exciting because it's the original vision. And when I text somebody a couple of dollars on Cointex, they just light up and they go, wow, that was so easy. You know, I didn't have to, you know, go through any hoops. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually, I didn't know about that project and I kind of wish I did because I would have loved to write about that. But I mean, definitely, I think that would make a good uh, future article. So thank you for letting me know about that. And I'm sure our, our listeners are also grateful for that information as well. So I, you know, I'm gonna ha- I have to ask this question because I I think that you're a great thought leader in this space, and um, I just want to know your thoughts on the price of Bitcoin. Like, what do you think will happen? Do you think that you know Bitcoin is here to stay and everything's going to be great, or other thoughts on that? <laughs> uh it's a good question. I, I usually shy away from making too many predictions. Okay. You know, I like to say it's sort of impossible to know in the short term what the price is going to be. I like to use the old Warren Buffett uh, saying that, you know, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. Mm-hmm. You know, Mr. Market shows up and today he likes it, tomorrow he doesn't. Uh, but in the long term, the market is a weighing machine. Right, there aren't any companies that make a billion in revenue that aren't worth a lot of money, right? And so over time, the market reflects sort of the core value of uh, of the project. And so for my for myself, I really believe in the use, utility thesis. So are people getting real value out of it? Are they using it, right? And so if you look at the economic studies, there's like a ninety plus percent correlation between the number of users a project has. And its value on the markets. So really, honestly, if you want the most predictive indicator, look at who's actually using a project, right? You know, um, and Ethereum today has more transactions than all other blockchains combined, right? So if I look at that metric, they're doing really great. You know, um, people are storing a lot of wealth still in in Bitcoin Core today, uh, though groups like Bitcoin Cash are going after lower fee, uh, higher scalability on-chain transactions. So I think there's a lot of room for Bitcoin Cash. And, you know, we mentioned Stellar earlier today and what they're doing with micropayments is uh, really exciting. You know, Open Garden, by the way, is using Stellar, mm-hmm. right? So they needed micropayments and the platform that they picked was Stellar. So I think we're going to see it sort of break out by different use cases, Right. I don't buy that there's sort of one coin to rule them all. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Right. There, you know, there's a company that's really great at search engines and there's a company that's really great at social networks and there's a company that's really great at chat apps. Right. These are all differentiated 
specialized network effects, right? And that's okay. Diversity and competition are a good thing. If you'd ask me about the market in general, you know, I would point people at the article by Kyle Samani recently. He is one of the uh, GPs and founders of Multicoin Capital. And he wrote a great thought leadership piece about how in the long term, crypto probably gets as an industry to $100 trillion. Mm. And some of that is currency and some of that is equities moving onto the blockchain and some of that is real estate and some of that is debt, right? So there's all these different buckets of assets today that are moving towards the blockchain. And it's just a question of, okay, there's $500 trillion of assets in the world. What percentage of those are going to move to blockchain you know, and in how long? Right. So if you look at the industry as a whole, we've got a long way to go sitting here at 200 billion. You know, we have yet to crack the first trillion dollars in digital assets, you know, and there's probably a hundred trillion at the low end to go in the next five, 10, 15 years as this matures. Right. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Um, David, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? Oh, I would just encourage people to really research and delve in for themselves. You know, the magic thing about uh, crypto is sort of it's a participatory sport, right? Everybody can do their own research and make their own choice. And that sort of freedom of choice is, is a really beautiful thing. And so, you know, I just encourage people to be savvy on this. If If it's, you know, the early days of the internet, it's like 1997, you would have been really well off to, you know, take a deep dive and, and understand what this internet thing is about. And so we're at, we're at 20 years later, we're at one of those moments again, right, in 2018, where understanding blockchain might tell you something about your own career, you know, whether you should take a job at one company or another. Well, you know, ask yourself if their model, their business model is about to be disrupted, or if you should instead focus on a different group that has a new way of doing things. And so these are sort of fundamental questions that affect everybody. And I really encourage people to just get involved and, you know, see how it's going to change things in their lives. And they really can see the benefit if they know those changes earlier than most. Right. Well, those are definitely words of wisdom coming directly from the creator, uh, one of the creators of dApps. So I definitely think that's wonderful advice and I'm sure uh, the listeners agree. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. All right. You too, Rachel. Great talking with you. Okay. Well, that about wraps it up for the very first episode of the Crypto Chick podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed. And the good news is if you did enjoy this episode, I've got a ton of great content coming out in the coming weeks, meaning I've got some really interesting interviews with influential people in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. So be sure to hit subscribe, follow this show, and also stay in touch. Um, you can find me on Instagram at blockchain and bikinis. We can also connect on Twitter at rachelwolf00, or you can send me a LinkedIn or Facebook request and, you know, just stay in touch and, and say hello. I love to see who my listeners are and chat back at them. And if you have any ideas for upcoming shows, feel free to let me know. I'll take that into consideration. So I hope to see you guys back here for my next episode. And I hope you enjoyed this first episode and I've got more great content to come. So thanks. Thanks.